All right, well, good morning. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. All right, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Go ahead and grab them or grab one near you in the pew. Romans chapter 1. I'm super excited about this. My favorite book in all of the Bible is the book of Romans. And uh, I've been waiting and putting this off and praying about it for years now. And uh, I ran out of excuses. So now we're going to go to Romans. So Romans chapter 1. I will be honest with you. Um, my plan was to get through 17 verses this morning. And as I did my notes and as I did my studying this week, we're going to get through one point. So... Um, that's going to be about all we can do. So maybe seven verses is as far as we're going to get as uh, we jump into the book of Romans. Romans is a gospel masterpiece. So rich, so deep, and so timely for believers and unbelievers. Paul is writing to a church in which he's never attended. He's writing to a church in Rome about A.D. 57, likely during his third missionary journey, sometime around... Acts 20, while he is in Corinth. He's writing to this church who he didn't, he, he didn't find it. He wasn't the planting pastor of this church. This church, more than likely, was uh, planted by Jewish Christians who had been at Pentecost or, or uh, dispersed from Jerusalem. And so Rome was the center of the world in those days, and there was a very vibrant church. And sometime around, around Acts 18... Emperor Claudius was uh, upset by all the commotion that was taking place by Jews and Christians. And so he, he excommunicated the Jews from Rome, and the church still flourished. As the Jews came back some five years later, they came back to a church that was full of Gentile believers. And you can imagine where Jews and Gentiles come in together, and they have all these different uh, divisions on how they eat, how they talk, how they dress, their political viewpoints, their laws, all these different codes. There was, a, there was an issue that was arising. There was a fight for unity in the body. Can you imagine being gone for, you know, a few years and coming back to your church and saying, who are all these new people? Can you imagine that? <laughs> and uh, this is where Rome was. And so Paul knows the very thing that they need. They need the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther more than likely founded the Protestant Reformation after spending some detailed time in the book of Romans. He says this, This epistle is in truth the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. It would be quite proper for a Christian not only to know it by heart, uh, word for word, but also to study it daily. For it is the soul's daily bread. It can never be read or meditated too much and too well. The more thoroughly it is treated, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. Well, it's my goal that we would take it step by step, word for word, thoroughly over the next who knows how long series that we're in, the book of Romans. As uh, John Christendom put it, he said, you put all the, the whole world on one side of the scale, and you'll see the soul of Paul outweighs it. It is... A daunting task to take on the book of Romans. Uh, I will be honest with you, I'm a little intimidated because I can be honest with you and tell you that I'm in the same boat as Peter. I don't understand everything Paul says. All right, and that's, that's exactly what he says in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17. Peter, who walked with Jesus for three years, who the church was founded on, right? He was, he was the rock. He was the one that, you know, was there preaching from the very beginning. 
He was part of the inner three. I know Jesus better than anybody. He says this. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, who wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them and all of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So Peter here will give the observation that when you read Paul, it's, it's difficult to understand, but also the warning. When it's difficult to understand, don't twist the scripture. Don't twist it. We must not twist what we do not understand in scripture toward immoral application. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you. Romans is one of those books that will offend you. There's going to be things that, that, that make the hair on, on your back, if you have hair on your back, stand up. <laughs> if you do, don't tell anybody. Yeah. It'll make your hair stand up, right? It, it'll, it'll ruffle your feathers is a better way to put it. <laughs> Get me in less trouble. It will ruffle your feathers. It will cause you to have disagreements. It will cause you to point fingers. It will cause you to take difficult areas of Scripture and argue. And that is not for the glory of God. It will also take the world. The world will take this word that they do not understand, and they will twist the words. And they will sound much like Genesis. Is that really what the Lord said? And they will twist it for their own self-destruction and their own immoral practices to approve of their selfish desires. So we are warned by Peter not to do that. God's word is not simply for intellectual understanding and application, but rather it's the power of God for internal transformation. So our goal is not to take all this information and then apply it. Our goal is that through studying his word, God would transform us from the inside out. That he would do something in us that we are incapable of doing ourselves. You know why? Because the gospel transforms lives. It radically transforms you. Spiritual transformation is greater than religious information and application every day of the week. It's so much greater that William Edgar says it this way, only God can affect such a change. The great difference between self-generated transformation and biblical conversion is that God is, the, is ultimately at work to affect the change. The only way we can be transformed is by operating in all areas of life under the grace of God who gives to all who believe in him unconditionally. It is my prayer as we jump into Romans chapter 1, the first seven verses, and as we go through the following weeks, that we would be transformed by the gospel. Though we may have heard it before, though we may have read it, he would transform our hearts. That he would do a work within us where every area of life would be submitted to the grace of God who gives unconditionally to those who believe. Amen? So let me pray for us because we've got some lofty things to go through. Gracious Father, we come to you. We thank you so much for your word. We are excited to open it up today. We're excited that you have granted us the opportunity as a body of believers to crack open your word, to hear the divinely inspired words that were written many, many, many years ago that still speak to the hearts of men and women today. Transform us by your word. Transform us by your gospel truth.
by the indwelling power of the Spirit that you bestow upon those who believe, radically mold us into your image. Help us to understand that it's not information and application, but it's a transformation of your righteousness. Father, we thank you for your words today. We ask, Lord, that you would lead and guide us, and if there are some who don't know you, that you would transform them, that you would throw their sins as far as the east is from the west, because your mercy is more. We love you. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Paul, writing to Romans. Let me get my glasses out. Let's go seven verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. First thing I want you to see, and the only thing we're going to get to today, number one, is the gospel received. The gospel received. Paul begins his letter because it's about the gospel. It's about receiving the gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It is about the gospel. Paul. Who is Paul? Many of you might be familiar with this, but Paul used to be Saul. He used to be big. He used to be grand, but Paul means small. And so he radically was transformed from Saul to Paul. And when he was Saul, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Jew. He was devout. He was very religious. He had mastered the information and application of his day. In fact, he was taught by Gamaliel, which was the, the leading guy in the area. It would be like going to an Ivy League school and being taught all the things you need to know and then showing up and saying, I was top of the class. You know, some people, gra uh, they graduate that way, and I graduated, thank the Lottie. So um, I just squeezed in there, just got in there. But he was at the top of his class. This guy saw, as we see in the book of Acts 8, jumps on the screen. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Oh, what a picture of Saul, right? This one who knows all these things, who's taken the information and now has application in his, in his religion. He is so zealous for it that he is now approving of the persecution of believers. He's applauding it. And not only that, he is now going into house after house, dragging men and women out. I get a visual picture of him grabbing them by the hair and dragging them out of the house and throwing them in prison because of their beliefs. This was Saul. But Saul did not know that he was about to be met face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Acts chapter 9, we see, But Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. On that day on the road to Damascus, Saul was transformed by the gospel. His entire trajectory of life was changed when he came face to face with Jesus Christ. This is the power of the gospel. The gospel will change you in an instant. It will take you from death to life. He was changed. He had all of these accolades, all of these things that he could boast in. And even when he writes in Philippians 3, 5 through 11, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Do you hear what he says right there? He listen, according to my resume, I've got everything under control. I have taken the information and I have had wonderful application even to where I would say I'm pretty much blameless here on my information and application of my religious standing, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What an amazing statement by Paul. Listen, all of this stuff is rubbish because of Jesus Christ, because of this one moment of transformation that took place in my life. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, listen, it's not about this information and application for my own righteousness. It is about the transformation of his righteousness being imputed or bestowed upon me or credited to me in Christ Jesus. So all of this is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus and being found in him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Oh, he was changed because when someone receives the gospel, their entire trajectory of life is changed. Why? Does the gospel change you? Because Christ changes you. I got a question for you today. Has Christ changed you? Has he changed you? Has he radically changed the trajectory of your life to where all of this stuff is rubbish, but I count, it, I count it as nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, and being found in him. Not of righteousness of my own, not, not information and application, but this transformation that has taken place. It is all about Jesus. As Tim Keller says, the gospel centers on Jesus. It's about a person, not a concept. It's about him, not us. We never grasp the gospel until we understand that it is not fundamentally a message about our lives, dreams, and hopes. The gospel speaks about and transforms all those things, but only because it isn't about us. It's a declaration about God's Son, the man, Jesus. Oh, as we give our testimony, as we talk about our faith journey, as we surrender our lives, it is all about Jesus Christ and not about us. 
The gospel transforms people from death to life, from religious gains to righteous grace, from self-centered living to Christ-centered exaltation. So you see, Paul is the case in point for both extremes. As far as religion, on one hand, he's the most religious, zealous person for the law of God, the most morally pure, uh, achieving person that you could ever imagine, but the gospel transformed him from pursuing righteousness of his own to receiving a righteousness that he did not deserve. Wow. And the flip side of that, he would call himself the chief of sinners. Oh, I'm someone who stood by and watched someone stone and I applauded their death. I'm someone who walked in houses and dragged men and women out and threw them in prison because of their belief in Jesus Christ. I am horrible. I'm a chief sinner that has been saved by the grace of God and his gospel. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't seeking after it. It just appeared one day and smacked him on the face and knocked him on the ground. And it changed him forever. I'm asking you this morning, not if you've mastered the ability to take biblical information and use it for moral application. I'm asking you if you've been knocked down by the overwhelming grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ, then you've been radically transformed. Paul. We're one, we're one word in, really. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Servant. The word there, really, a better translation in the Greek is the word slave. Someone who had been purchased. As he describes himself, he says, listen, I'm, I'm transformed. I'm no longer Saul, I'm Paul, and now I'm a slave to Christ. In his book, Slave, John MacArthur writes this. The outside world called them Christians. The earliest believers repeatedly referred to themselves in the New Testament as the Lord's slaves. For them, the two ideas were synonymous. To be a Christian was to be a slave of Christ. Their self-identity had been radically redefined by the gospel. What a beautiful line that is. Is that what you would say when you want to describe yourself? I have been radically redefined by the gospel. I have been transformed. Whether slave or free in this life, they had all been set free from sin. Yet having been bought with a price, they had all become slaves to Christ. That is what it meant to be a Christian. Oh, to describe yourself as a Christian meant I am a slave of Jesus Christ. He goes on and says this in the book. We don't hear about that concept much in churches today. In contemporary Christianity, the language is anything but slave terminology. It's about success, health, wealth, prosperity, and the pursuit of happiness. We often hear that, the, that God loves people unconditionally and wants them to be all that they want to be. He wants to fulfill their every desire, hope, and dream, personal ambition, personal fulfillment, personal gratification. These have all become part of the language of evangelical Christianity and part of what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Instead of teaching the New Testament gospel where sinners are called to submit to Christ, the contemporary message is exactly the opposite. Jesus here, Jesus is here to fulfill all your wishes, likening him to a personal assistant or a personal trainer. Many churchgoers speak of a personal savior who is eager to do their bidding and to help them in their quest of self-satisfaction 
an individual accomplishment. The New Testament understanding of a believer's relationship with Christ could not be more opposite. He is the master and the owner. We are his possession. He is the king and the Lord, the son of God, and we are his subjects and his subordinates. In a word, we are his slaves. Augustine asked the rhetorical question which I will ask, does your Lord deserve, not deserve to have you as his trustworthy slave? If you think about the transformation, the gospel, if you think about all of these things, is he not worthy? You were purchased. You were bought at a price. You were bought at a high price, the price of his son hanging on a cross in the place of your sins. He did not allow the cup to be removed, but he took the full wrath of God in your place. Does he not deserve to have you as a trustworthy slave? As Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Oh, because of the transformation and the purchasing that has taken place, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is no longer about me, but I am a subordinate. I am a slave to Christ, and I am at his bidding, and I will do as he has called me to do, because it is not about me. It is about him. This is the gospel message that transforms lives, all because of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. He has been transformed. He has been purchased. And now he says, I have been called, commissioned, and consecrated for the gospel of God. Do you realize that you've been called? Do you realize you've been commissioned? That you've been set apart, consecrated for the gospel of God, that there is now a purpose behind him purchasing you and redeeming you? Every believer has a purpose because you have been purchased. That was almost a tongue twister. I almost got messed up there. That was a close one. Now we're watching. What, a, what an amazing thought that you've been called, you've been set apart, and you've been commissioned with a purpose, the gospel. You've been called to be part of the church. The church is the ecclesia, a Greek word that comes from the verb kaleo, meaning to call, and the prefix ek, meaning out of. Every Christian is called out of the world, out of bondage, out of death, and out of sin, and into Christ and into his body. As a believer, you have now been called out and grafted in. You are now part of the church. You are called out ones and you are sent out. You are called with the gospel. As Peter would say in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You have been chosen you're royal, you've been washed clean, you can now boldly approach the throne, of, the throne of grace. You're a holy nation, you're being sanctified and justified in Christ, a people of his own possession. You have been purchased so that, you see this? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is purpose behind his purchasing of you. The gospel. Well, we're one verse in. Let's go verse two. Ready? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This 
has been promised from beforehand. The beauty of the gospel, the gospel of God has been promised through the prophets, through the scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, that he would be the son of God in the flesh, declaring the power of God in his spirit and holiness because of the resurrection. This has been told throughout all of scripture. As Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is going to be with us in the flesh and he will be born of a virgin. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He was God in the flesh. Emmanuel. Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Out of this tribe there will come forth the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He will sit on the throne of Israel. He will reign in justice and power, and he will come out of this little, little tiny clan. It has been foretold. We have seen it through the prophets, through the scriptures, and not only that, we know that he will not only be God in the flesh, but he will suffer and die in our place. Psalm 22:16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. As the psalmist here is giving prophetic language to the crucifixion, the crucifixion had not even been invented by the Persians at this point. But this is so detailed to say that the Son of God, who would be God in the flesh, is going to be pierced in his hands and his feet, that he is going to suffer and die on behalf, that he would take the full cup of wrath of God, that he would feel abandoned and forsaken on the cross as he takes the sins of humanity. And he would cry out out of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning. As Jesus hung there on the cross, he said these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he took the full wrath of sin. Each and every sin that you have committed or will commit was placed on him. The wrath of God was placed on him in your place. But as it was foretold, death would not hold him. Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave. I will not be abandoned to the grave or, or let your Holy One see corruption. There will be no decom decomposition that takes place here because he will be risen on the third day. Jesus would say, you tear down this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. This is the story that has been foretold throughout all the prophets and all the scriptures. This is the gospel, and it's God's gospel. It is good news. It is the story of God and his righteousness and holiness revealed. It is the word of God and the power of God unto salvation, redemption, justification, forgiveness, grace, and mercy. It is accomplished in Christ Jesus and is solidified and guaranteed in his resurrection. This is the hope that we have. This is the only way that one can be saved is because of what Jesus Christ has done. This is the gospel. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12.
So whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There is a hope for us who believe because salvation comes through no one else but Jesus Christ and him alone. This is the story of ancient of days. This has been the story and the plan, plan A from the very beginning. Jesus was not plan B. He was plan A. God knew what he was getting into when he, when he created us all. And he had a plan that Jesus Christ would one day come in the flesh and he would crush the serpent's head. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is a confession that with my mouth that Jesus is Lord of my life. It is all about him. It is no longer about me. And I believe that what he did on the cross and his resurrection was in my place and that there is life everlasting. And he saved us. If that's you today and you've made that profession of faith, if you've put your heart and life into Jesus Christ and you say, I am all yours. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He saved you. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We did nothing to earn it or deserve it. As we sang the song this morning, what is our hope in life and death? The answer, Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our soul belongs to him. Our only hope is the gospel that has been promised through the scriptures and the prophets that is fulfilled in Christ and applied to the sinner by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Verses five through seven. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here that the gospel we received has a purpose, a threefold purpose. The gospel we received is for grace-fueled obedience. Grace-fueled obedience. This is not information and application. This is transformation that then is grace-fueled obedience, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. God's purpose for pouring out grace on us is not for us to continue in immoral living in the hopes of one day having eternal salvation, but to be drawn by grace into willful obedience as we await that blessed hope. So many miss the fact of God's grace that they abuse it, that they continue along in immoral living, thinking, well, one day we'll, we'll make it in. It'll, we'll, we'll skid in just, just barely. The grace that you have been given is to, be a grace, to lead to a grace-fueled obedience. This gospel leads to obedience. It is faith that produces a fruit of obedience. Transformation will always produce fruit. Grace received results in grateful obedience. If you understand the grace that has now been given to you in Jesus Christ, there will be a life of grateful obedience. So the gospel generates in us a grace-fueled obedience. Martin Luther, again, the great reformer, said, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. It always produces a fruit. A fruit of obedience. 
the gospel received is not the process of taking information for application that manufactures obedience. It is the internal transformation of receiving a grace that produces in us a fruit of obedience. There's a lot of times where we can manufacture obedience based on religious effort. Where we can take a section of information and say, okay, well then I'm going to apply this to my life. And if that is the, that's the case, then, then we'll boast in our own righteousness as Paul did. We'll walk around and say, look what I've been able to do. Look how good I've been. Look how zealous I've been. To the law, blameless. But it doesn't save us. And my fear is that there are many who grow up in church who have mastered the Christianese language that we have, who have mastered the biblical information for application, and their hearts have never been regenerated and transformed by the glory of God through the gospel. It's for his name. So number two, the gospel we received that results in grace-filled obedience is for the sake of the nations. It's for his name among all the nations. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. I want you to see the connection here. A grace-fueled, obedient life is a life of grace-fueled evangelism. A life of grace-fueled obedience is a witness for his name among the nations. As we live out a life committed to him, the nations see much of him. But when we don't make much of his name through our fruitful obedience, what Jesus are we showing them? It's for his name's sake. J.D. Greer put it this way, if you believe Jesus is Lord, you have to be doing what you can to bring others into obedience to him. If you're not... Stop claiming to be one of his followers because this is the most central of his commands. That's a bold statement. Bold statement that has been made that that is a central command. But as we see in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This make disciples, the central command and commission to all believers, has two categories here. To baptize them, meaning that they now have the visual picture of being in the church, that they have been dead to sin and risen to newness of life, that they have been fully immersed with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that their hope is no longer in themselves, but it is in Christ and his work alone. And number two, by teaching them to observe. So you baptize them, but then you, you continue to teach them to observe or to keep or to guard from loss or injury. There's an ongoing teaching that takes place in the life of a disciple. A disciple is never done learning. A disciple is always charged with the keeping or guarding of the gospel. As John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
You'll guard them. You'll keep them. It's hard to be a witness to the nations if our life is not marked by grace-fueled obedience. If your life is not marked by grace-fueled obedience, you'll have a very difficult time making disciples who keep his commandments because they don't see you keeping his commandments. And three, the gospel we received that results in grace-filled obedience is for the sake of those who belong to Jesus Christ. The gospel, yes, transforms us into fruitful obedience for his na- namesake among the nations, but it's also for those who belong to Jesus, so including you. This gospel is for you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. It's not just the nations who need to be taught the gospel, but believers also need to be reminded over and over and over of the gospel. Sunday after Sunday and week after week, we gather together to remember the gospel, to declare and share with one another that God has declared that Jesus is his son, raised with power to rule in power, and that by faith in him, we enjoy grace from him and peace with him. As we sing songs this morning, we sing the gospel. As we open God's word, we declare the gospel. As we share with one another in fellowship, as we gather together as the body of believers, we encourage one another because of the gospel. Because the gospel transforms lives. We'll close with Hebrews 10, 22 through 25. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us hold fast the confession. Let us hold fast to the gospel, the hope that we have without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he who transformed you and purchased you and has given you purpose is holding you and he is faithful. He will hold you fast. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have radically transformed us. You've taken us from death to life. You've taken us from religious efforts to righteousness and grace. Father, today, if there's someone here or someone who has heard your word, your gospel, for the first time, who needs to surrender their life to you. I pray, Lord, that you would do that right now by the power of your spirit, that you would allow them a moment to cry out to you in prayer, to bow not only their knee, but their life to you in surrender. Father, if we've not considered ourselves slaves to you, Lord, that we would lay our lives down on the altar right now. You are worthy. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?